Welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast, a podcast about being gay and sober and not just on Sundays. In this podcast, we'll explore the ins and outs of being queer and sober in a world where drinking and using are woven into the fabric of our culture. This season, we'll be hearing the stories of addiction and recovery from sober gays from all over the world. Every story of recovery is unique in its own way, and every story deserves to be heard. So let's go. In this episode, we welcome Corey. Corey is a former chef, author of a book series, creator of the photojournalism project Hearts of Strangers, and a current social work student, finishing his MSW degree. He also has 10 years of continuous sobriety and commitment to his recovery and healing journey. Please welcome Corey. So good morning, Corey. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Very good. Welcome to the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. We're happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So why don't we start out by you telling us your name, your preferred pronouns, and a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Corey Hudson. I am 46. I live in Connecticut. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. And I'm currently uh, working in healthcare. Um <clears throat> formerly at a substance use treatment for a substance use treatment company um and uh, i'm shifting into a behavioral health company um in the coming weeks and i'm also a student uh, a full-time student working on my social work degree so that's that's amazing that's a lot of lot going on right now that's fantastic yes so why don't you take us through your sobriety journey? You can start us off from the very beginning when you first started drinking and using and just take us all the way through up till today. Sure. So it's it's interesting. I think, you know, co- coming coming into the first couple of years of my sobriety, I had a lot of um, clarity in looking back and kind of, um, you know, connecting connecting some dots in my journey. And I think one of the, one of the factors that really stood out to me that was a catalyst to to a lot of my substance use and um and other kind of compulsive and harmful behaviors was connected to my sexuality so you know i'm i'm 46 when i was um kind of coming to grips with my sexuality it was in the early 90s i was you know a teenager i think you know mtv was just kind of playing playing music videos and you know the the real world and things of that nature. So there wasn't a lot of access to um, non-shame-based kind of examples of homosexuality. And this was also at the height of the AIDS, HIV epidemic. So there was a lot of internalized shame and and fear and guilt um, in around some of the the ways that I was um, kind of coming to, to know myself. And um, coupled with that, my parents' marriage was was pretty uh, tumultuous, and there was a lot of uh, you know kind of d- domestic issues. My mother's mental health, domestic issues, police being at our house frequently. Um, I found my way into drugs and alcohol by way of cigarettes. My father was uh, a smoker; he continues to smoke cigarettes to, to this day. My mother was as well, but she 
she ended up quitting um, following an accident where my youngest sister walked into her lit cigarette and burnt, burnt the cornea of her eye. Um, so I started like stealing cigarettes from my father's pack that, you know, would, would be laying around on the, the kitchen counter. Um, and that gave me kind of access to kind of be, uh, be cool, you know, uh, with, with friends. I, I kind of grew up as, as an artist type. I took dance growing up as a kid, which wasn't a common thing for, for guys to do, um, would sit by myself at lunch because I didn't really, you know, feel an association to any sort of clique or, or group in school. So uh, cigarettes kind of gave me, cigarettes and getting in trouble in school kind of gave me an access point to um, kind of align with some of the, the misfits. And, you know, looking back, I can see that these were kids that had similar issues at home mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and didn't have the, the resources to deal with it. So smoking progressed into, you know, stealing alcohol from my grandmother's um, shed on Thanksgiving. She had like a separate refrigerator um, in the garage slash shed where there was like cans of soda and there's beer and wine coolers and things. And people could just go in and help themselves. And I thought I was being very smart on um, Thanksgiving. I think I was, um, you know, a, a young teenager and grabbed some some beers and some wine coolers and threw them in the trunk of my parents' car. Of course, the way home, <laughs> they were rolling, rolling around. And so I got caught out uh, pretty, pretty quickly with that. But, uh, but yeah, I didn't I didn't particularly care for the taste of beer. Um, I think my affinity towards alcohol was um, to to fit in, you know, to kind of like participate. Um, in in ways that other teenagers and peers were trying to you know kind of feel better and escape themselves and um yeah i think i also liked what it did for me you know kind of removed some of the, the oppressive um weights that, that i kind of carried with me um alcohol cigarettes led to access to marijuana that led to access to other substances like LSD and mescaline, and, um, mushrooms, things that I experimented with my teenage years. My first kind of low point was an intersection of depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicidal ideation, substance use, um, and my mother kind of finding my journal and um, hospitalizing me in the psychiatric hospital when I was probably 15 or 16. Um, of course, that wasn't, um, you know, the catalyst for my sobriety. I think I was resistant to being there. My mother had spent a lot of time coming in and out of psych ward, so I wasn't particularly um, excited to be there, but it did give me some distance uh, to be able to look at the kind of conditions in my life. But I, I returned to substance use, um, I did. So I was still dating women at the time. And uh, the friend that I started to have kind of a boyfriend girlfriend relationship with, I would consider kind of very square. She had kind of a functional family, even though uh, her parents were functional alcoholics. Um, they went to church, they had, you know, they lived on the better side of town. And uh, she was pretty straight laced. She wasn't going to have sex until she was married. So it was very safe for me as a young gay 
mm-hmm. a teenager. Um, but that that relationship kind of um, pushed me to to do a couple of things. One, to repress my sexuality, but also to move away from smoking and some of those other behaviors like drinking and smoking marijuana. So I had a little bout of time where I was kind of um, becoming more straight-laced, I guess you could say. But the price of the, or the cost of that was that I was repressing my sexuality and that was showing up in, in kind of other ways where I have kind of uncontrollable like breakdowns where just like a flood of emotions, like almost like there was some sort of monster in me that was trying to, to get free. So um, into my 20s, I, I got uh, I moved away from from women. I came out when I was 16 as bisexual and then recognized that I was um, gay and that I wasn't interested in, in women romantically. Um, started going to some of my first bars, I think, when I was um, underage. There was a place in Springfield where you could get in and you know I knew the bartender. I met him at a tanning salon. So um, I was introduced to some of the first drinks that didn't taste like alcohol which were um, like blue Hawaiians. And you know, I, I think I learned pretty quickly that, uh, you know, I didn't know when to stop <laughs> and, you know, would find myself, you know, at doing, doing things that I, I normally wouldn't do and kind of drinking to the point where you know, I couldn't function, where I would get sick and have hangovers. It'd be pulling over to vomit on my way to, to work. Um, and then I'd be, you know, going out again the next night. So I had a run with alcohol primarily being the substance. Marijuana kind of uh, wove in and out. Cigarettes made, made their way in and out. Um, had another period where I kind of shifted away from at least the, the marijuana and the cigarettes and uh, was trying to be kind of a, a good, a good uh domestic partner I was in some gay relationships playing house but again when I would drink socially with with people I would be the one that was kind of you know moving on to the second the third sometimes the fourth bottle of wine when everyone else was having two glasses mm-hmm. uh, and I had a, a friend one of um one of my partner's good friends kind of pointed out to me that he thought that I had an issue or at least he told my boyfriend at the time and I was very offended by that I thought you know he doesn't know me who is he to to say that um but I didn't I didn't see myself clearly you know I didn't no one was really I wasn't interested in looking in the mirror and there weren't many people in my life that were holding a mirror up to me I just kind of saw maybe you know a cycle of like turbulence and drama in my life um my relationships also played into uh, my substance use. I tended to, um, at least my last two uh, partners were, were also um, people who had substance use issues and you know histories of mental health issues, PTSD. Um, I was in a relationship for, for a number of years in my mid-20s with um, someone who was abusing pills and cocaine and alcohol and um uh, and smoking socially and that kind of got me back into to smoking and um drinking kind of at at his pace um I didn't really have a, a mindset of my own but I did have a preference to 
uh, at that point to smoke marijuana and to kind of, you know, abuse pills. So I was kind of like, all right, if drinking is going to be your thing, then this is going to be my thing. Yeah. Of course, that didn't last long before it uh, broke down. I found myself um, kind of spiraling into another depression, uh, coming out the other side of that relationship, lost my job, was working at Yale University as a chef at that time. And, um, and I tried uh, towards the end to get my act together. I had many friends and peers and um, some of my supervisors who tried to intervene um, to advocate for me, to give me an opportunity to get uh, get some help to go on FMLA. I was in a union, so I had some protection, um, but I squandered it and ended up losing that job and took me probably a few more years um, going through another relationship before that brought me to a similar downward spiral of running away from grief before I landed in a psychiatric hospital for the second time. Um, and this was the time that kind of was the aha moment. Um, I had gotten to a place where I had kind of cornered myself. I didn't have enough money coming in. I lost my health insurance. I had been on some antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, which I wasn't able to wean off of, um, which contributed to some of the suicidal thoughts that I was having and kind of the, the climactic uh, surge of emotion that I was fleeing from. Um, but those 10 days that I spent in the psychiatric ward, I think gave me enough distance you know, from, from my situation to look at myself more clearly and to recognize as much as I could point the finger at my partners, my family, um, different conditions in my life that the common denominator in all of them was me. And, you know, that kind of brought me to a place of, okay, well, me is something I have control over. I don't have control over the other things. So that that was kind of a, a catalyst to, to some of the work, as well as, you know, uh, having an opportunity to see other people coming into that psychiatric hospital, feeling embarrassed, feeling shame, feeling vulnerable, feeling, you know, some sense of humiliation for, for kind of being at that point in their life, being in that space. And, you know, I tapped into a space within me that allowed me to feel empathy, to feel compassion, to um, kind of shift away from feeling sorry for myself and recognize that, you know, we live in a society where we're all saying we're okay and that things are good when people ask us how, how we are. But in actuality, um, we're, we're doing the best we can, but uh, we're all struggling with something. And I think that I needed to see a little kind of peek behind the curtains to, to know that I wasn't alone in the struggles and that um, was comforting to me and kind of an invitation for me to um, be be a support in some way to others as I started to progress in my own sobriety. So that's kind of a little bit of a, a, a snapshot. Relationships, various substances, shame around my sexuality, not having coping skills to, to deal with um, emotional, the emotional landscape of being a human being. Um, not not knowing how to process grief, um, 
we're all kind of con contributing factors. And then of course, you know, as, as a man, regardless of my sexuality, there's a certain expectation that, you know, you're, you soldier on. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, being able to have the language to express emotions and to, to not feel embarrassed about having emotions was, was a journey. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's very relatable for sure. I mean, a lot of us are just kind of balance all of our trauma with also the expectation of what it is to be a man quote unquote and it's it's the when you pull yourself away from your emotions trying to shut it down is where a lot of the trouble starts so it's very relatable so now that you are sober what are some of the tools in your sobriety toolbox do you do aa do you listen to podcasts do you do journaling what are some of the things that keep you sober day to day yeah so i think uh early on uh, I had been to some some different meetings, NA meetings, AA meetings. I didn't feel a particular alignment with those. Um, you know, I I think I saw them before I got into recovery, and um, as I was in recovery myself, as kind of uh, almost like a conference where people were coming together to grieve their 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 lives of of substance use. So. Um, what ended up happening for for me, and, and not that I see it that way anymore. I think AA and NA have have a lot of value, and and that they work for people. Um, but I think organically, I ended up incorporating a lot of the principles of a twelve step program into my life in a in a more organic way that kind of um, fit with with my spiritual beliefs and different outlets that I felt uh, a connection to. Um, so I, I found some. Uh, a meditation space where there was kind of like a recovery meeting, uh, mindfulness practice at, at a Shambhala center that I went to um, for probably the first couple of years in, in my recovery. Yoga, um, you know, kind of reconnecting with my body um, was an important practice. Picking up the camera was something I had done towards um, the end of my substance use, but became uh, a real tool for me to, to kind of fully like tap into the present and pay attention to um, beauty and the good things around me. And it also gave me a way to navigate social situations um, without having a drink in my hand. So it gave me kind of a purpose to, to navigate. I think I, I struggled with a lot of social anxiety. And um, so that was definitely really beneficial. Um, being of service, you know, I had periods in early recovery where I was unemployed, and so I got involved in some volunteer work, first with a friend who had a project called the Gratitude Project, and, um, you know, did some some work with her that kind of combined photography and interviewing strangers about what they were grateful for, which led me to my own project, um, where I kind of um, expanded beyond that to ask people about the biggest challenge in their life and how they had recovered from it or how they were kind of coping with it. Um, and that became a project that I did for about five years, which I think was really instrumental in my own recovery and, you know, maintaining a, a sense of shared humanity and that we're all in this together and that no one's immune to uh, human experience and and some sort of suffering and that there's a lot of good in that that it can um, you know kind of help us identify our strengths and, um, and so so I 
I think leaning into courage, leaning into vulnerability, um, really curating my friendships was was critical. I had to to weed out some some toxic friends that couldn't um, quote unquote friends that couldn't really mm-hmm. support my journey. Um, and that was hard to do. I ended up changing careers. I had worked in the culinary field as a chef and a manager um, for nearly 20 years. And I didn't really know how I was going to get out of that industry. I, I wanted to get out of it probably 10 years prior to, to when I actually did. Um, but, you know, through a turn of events, through, you know, some bartending early in recovery, which is kind of surprising, mm-hmm. um, doing some some service work with, with the project. Um, I published a, a book kind of connected to the project. And after coming back from a cross-country trip that was connected to that project, uh, I stumbled upon uh, what I had never seen before, which was Pierce. Um, and so I found my way into human services work by by way of, you know, kind of what were some of my darkest moments in my life. So again, it kind of reinforced that there is there is value, you know, kind of in in the struggles and that if you can recycle them and repurpose them in a way to help others, to help yourself even, um, you know, that it can it can be your goal, it can be your your kind of key. So I started working. Um, with the homeless population, which led to um, you know a variety of people who had uh, disadvantages that, that needed support, and you know kind of led me on this pathway towards social work. Thank you for tuning into the Sober Gay Sunday podcast. Please feel free to like, subscribe, share, and comment. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Sober Gay Sunday. You can also email me directly at SoberGaySunday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time. Stay sober, guys. I'm so sick of small talk. Can tell me something, you're dropping.